Hello and welcome to Sex News with Ray. I'm your host, Ray, and today we're joined by my friend, Yona Siena. Yona has a BA in Classics from the University of King's College in Halifax, where they were the vice president of the King's Pride Society. They teach Hebrew and Jewish topics both privately and through various synagogues in Toronto, and have lectured on disability, mental health, and other topics. Yona is currently on the programming committee of the LGBTQ Plus at the Miles Nadal JCC, and will be taking Jewish studies at the graduate level this fall at the University of Cincinnati. Yona, say hi. Hi, everyone. This is very exciting. Why is this exciting for me? Because Yona and I actually met at a Jewish youth group when we were in the 10th grade going on one of those non-religious but rooted in a religious organization's mission trip to rebuild houses in New Orleans. And we basically stayed friends ever since as we moved through the dual sphere of Jewish lifestyle programming and events and synagogue life while also being very involved in different social movements. I don't want to say social justice movements because that's more you than me, I believe. But, you know, feminism and sex positivity and slut rights versus yeah. LGBTQ plus and disability awareness and all the stuff that you're involved in. Yeah, for sure. I think we've both been what uh, is sometimes called in the community a Jew for hire, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And then we've also had times when we've been a bit more distant from the Jewish community professionally. So it's it's interesting. It's definitely one of those things where when I leave the community, I miss it. And when I'm back, I'm like, why did I do this to myself again? <laughs> Which I've heard a lot of people involved in church life feel similarly. Yeah. Well, the first thing you need to know about Judaism, if it's some, not something you're familiar with, is that we have a saying, two Jews, three opinions. Yep. So the Jewish community is incredibly diverse and you can go into one part of the Jewish community and feel amazing and feel at home and feel able to bring your whole self. And then you might go into other places and you're like, oh no. On that note, I'll go into our article for the day because I feel like that also really explains that idea of there's not just one Jewish opinion. So today in Sex News, the article was called, Do Jews Have an Unhealthy Relationship to Sex? It's from the Canadian Jewish News, May 2017, which, what a publication, the Canadian uh, Jewish News. We could have a whole episode just on what the Canadian Jewish News is, but... I don't uh, even think they know what they are, and that's kind of the problem. <laughs> okay, so this article opens with the story about Jacob, who's 22, getting what's called chatan lessons. He's getting wedding lessons from the rabbi to prepare him for his wedding night. Specifically, what is allowed and what is not allowed in the bedroom, according to Jewish law. Jacob mentions the class dispelled the myth that Jews only have sex for procreation. And then the quote that I pulled from him is, the custom underscores the extent to which Orthodox Judaism treats sex as a sacred, tightly prescribed act limited to the boundaries of, in brackets, heterosexual, marriage and intrinsically bound to ritual. So then the article follows up by giving examples of a trope in the media, which constitutes another Jewish uh, perspective on sex which is a secular perspective, oversexed and self-obsessed American Jews like Abby from Broad City or Hannah from Girls. And, and I think it's important to say that this is explicitly gendered. There's a lot going on with Judaism and gender and how Jewish women are seen versus how Jewish men are seen. Okay, let's get into that a little bit later because I love that. The author asks the question, do we have an unhealthy relationship to sex? And then goes on to get different perspectives from different community members. So we start with Mulka, a sex therapist, former kala instructor, meaning wedding bride instructor for the, the Orthodox Jewish women's side of that, and high school teacher at the local religious girls' school. She does serve a wide swath of people, not just the Jews, 
And her client's sexual issues, she says, are same across the board. So she says that a religious upbringing can serve as an obstacle and a boon with sex problems, including how good Khatan and Kala teachers can be helpful. But if they're poorly trained, it results in dysfunctional couples and goes on to talk about how each rabbi in school may handle conversations around sex differently. But they will always try to preserve the concept of sex as kadosh or sacred. So holy, separate, beautiful, important, but always private. Judy Green is a sex educator in New York, director of admissions for Ramah Israel's teen programs, and she finds that many Jewish kids these days are overly sheltered. Her sex ed classes focus on biblical and Talmudic sources, and her approach is influenced by the conservative Jewish movement. This does not mean conservative politics. This is a branch of the Jewish it's a it's a sect, S-E-C-T. We'll get into the different uh, movements in Judaism, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, and And everything in between, yeah. Yeah. And apparently her stuff is LGBTQ inclusive. She's realistic that most people will have sex before marriage. And she says sex in Judaism isn't about the sex. It's about the relationship and her lessons focus on respect and self-esteem. And Josh Lambert, he's a professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, but he's from Toronto and author of Unclean Lips, Obscenity Jews in American Culture. Over the course of his research, he found many American Jews were producing and legally defending explicit sexual materials. He notes that a lot of the sex portrayed in the oeuvre of artists like Alan and Roth consists of sex between Jewish men and non-Jewish women. It's about the tensions and excitements of sex with the other. It comes down to a fascination with assimilation and questions of identity as played out through sexual metaphor. If anybody has seen the musical The Last Five Years, there is literally a song called Shiksa Goddess, which is about a Jewish man singing about how happy he is to be sleeping with a non-Jewish girl, finally. He's been sleeping with Jewish girls his whole life, and finally he gets this shiksa goddess. It's a very interesting dynamic there. And, and also, just to bring it back to musical theater, because that's the kind of person I am, uh, if you look at Rent, there's a whole tango Maureen between Mark and Joanne. One of the jokes in it, one of the punchlines, is how undersexed the Jewish Mark is, having learned tango in the Scarsdale Jewish Community Center. And it's this punchline. It's like, haha, you learned it from a Jewish community center where she learned it from this Parisian... Something? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to continue on with the summary because there's so much more here that also speaks to that. So later in the post-Ronald Reagan political landscape of the United States in the 1990s, Lambert says that the rise to prominence of evangelical Christian culture likely unsettled many Jews. Look at people like Larry David and Sarah Silverman. Their openness about sex is a way to refute that moral majority thing happening, he says. Once it's ubiquitous, the model starts to feed on itself. By the time the broad city girls are growing up, they look to older Jewish sources and see these intensely sexual things, and so they associate that with Jewish tradition. The article concludes talking about the role of pleasure in Jewish marriage beds, but it can get complicated when patriarchy gets involved, as usual, and also just in general, the role of sex in Judaism is vital and intrinsic. So that's today's article that we're going to dive into, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, there's so much there. Let's start with the basics for our listeners who are like, I've never heard Jewish people speak outside of yeah. Larry David and Sarah Silverman, aside from those comedians. I guess my question is, when you tell someone you're Jewish, what do people assume? A lot of people don't know a lot about Judaism. And the two assumptions that go hand in hand is, wait, are you religious? And then sometimes the other one, wait, are you from Israel? Or do you support Israel? Because uh. that is... I'm going to point out for any listeners who are listening and who are potentially Jewish and Zionists, this is not the Israel podcast, and we're not getting into the complex uh, dynamics of the Jewish people in Israel 
during the next six episodes. If you are waiting for that, we're not doing it. Just letting you know. And that's a problem, is that anytime Jews want to talk about anything, other people are like, wait, can we talk about Israel instead? I'd like to be a Jew talking about sex. And people are like, what about Israel? And we're like, we're, we're Jews talking about sex. Not I, Israelis talking about sex. That's a I, whole other... It derails the other conversations. And it's something that you would recognize as unfair if you were talking to someone of a different background. If they said, hi, I'm from this background and I'm going to talk about sex. And you say, wait, tell me about the politics of the country that your ancestors came from. It's like, no, no, they're here to talk about sex and they have this background. They have this ancestry. But yeah. with Jews, apparently it's a free pass. I find that I get this number one question, which is why I wanted to do a whole podcast season about it, which is how can you work at a sex club and post your ass on the internet and be the person that you are and be Jewish? Isn't that not allowed? Aren't you going to hell for that? Uh... And I want to facepalm every time because there's so many standard Christian assumptions. They think that they know the Torah because they have the Old Testament. And just because we have different incarnations of the afterlife and even hell in the Torah, that doesn't mean that that's a central tenet of our religion or even a core value. It is yeah. not. Uh, you know, we talked about two Jews, three opinions. There are so many opinions about the afterlife in Judaism. There is no one central dogma the way that there are in other religions. Different rabbis, different texts and sources have different opinions on it. We definitely do not have this idea that there is a heaven and there is a hell and that is the end of the story. It's a very complicated topic. But the most important thing is that Judaism focuses on the here and now, how you're living in this world and how that's going to affect you in this world. And it doesn't have this judgment that after you die, these things will happen. The focus is so much on what will have you live the best life right now. I also think that there's a lot of Jewish people who get that confused because they met a judgmental rabbi. So they think Judaism is judgmental. No, you just had a judgy rabbi who was a bit of a dick. Judaism and itself isn't judging you. They're just saying this is how to live a life that will bring you closer to sacredness in this day and now. And you can choose to do that. But if you choose to do that, this is how you do it. And when it comes to sex, I think because Jewish tradition has a very strong history of distinguishing between moral commandments and ritual commandments or cultural commandments, they understand that if you're doing something in the bedroom that maybe the Torah isn't a fan of, that's more similar to eating unkosher or breaking some other cultural taboo than it is a moral thing like killing someone. We don't make this equivalence about like, this is a sin. No, no, no. There are things that are morally bad and those have consequences in society. And then there are things that maybe go against Jewish tradition that may have consequences in terms of your relationship with God, but they're kept very separate. You won't be judged in the same way for the things that you do privately as you would be if you were committing things that are morally abhorrent. Jews, I, I think even as far as Orthodox Jews, do not consider kink or gay sex or any of those things to be morally abhorrent? Well, the gay sex is complicated depending on which rabbi you talk to. I would say that the LGBT spaces in Judaism, there are orthodox LGBT positive spaces, but I would say that the farther you get to, oh, I should take a step back. Reform Judaism is on the, the left in terms of how traditional they are. Orthodox Judaism is on the far right in terms of how traditional they are conservative is dead in the middle. And by traditional, I 
It could mean values like traditional gender roles, or it could just mean they follow the traditions of their people from this one rabbi who said you cannot dress like anyone else. You must still dress like you're from the 1800s and wear this for hat. So a, a really important thing to know about Judaism is that we are not just Christians without the New Testament. We are yes. not just Christians without the New Testament. The Jewish Bible consists of the Torah, then other books like the prophets and writings like the Psalms and the story of Queen Esther and the Purim Megillah. And then the Jewish texts continue into the Middle Ages into the modern period, commentaries on the Torah and other texts. Commentaries, so fun. Commentaries where you get opinions on homosexual relationships, not the Torah. We have a little bit in the Torah, but with pretty much everything in Judaism, the Torah will hint at things, and then through the Middle Ages, interpretations will grow on it. The Torah says the only thing that is important about Shabbat is that you do not work. You don't work on the Sabbath. Then the rabbis of the Middle Ages define more things about Shabbat. They say what it means to work or not work. These things count as work, and these things do not count as work. They also develop traditions like the prayer service that you have on Friday nights or Saturday mornings. Can we stop using services from the Middle Ages, please? (laughs) They are so long. Yeah, so the reform movement, which originated about 200 years ago, said, hey, the world is becoming more modern. Maybe we should modernize our practice as well. Keep the Torah, but instead of keeping the interpretations of it that have been handed down to us, We're free to make new interpretations of it. We can keep some things that have been handed down to us through the Middle Ages. We could just go directly to the Torah and and make new things that speak to us by interpreting it in our own way. Orthodox Judaism came in reaction to that, saying, no, we will keep practicing it in exactly the same way, even though, of course, they did have to change how they practiced it because there was changes in society and they had to decide I have a really important. So you're saying that Orthodox Judaism has only been around for 200 years. That is true. Working in Jewish youth groups, I feel like there's this general opinion that the Orthodox Jewish opinion is the correct opinion and the correct interpretation because they have the most strict following of these older laws. But they're following not necessarily what the Torah even said. No. They're following what a few rabbis said we should do in response to the reform movement. I do want to just add that when I talk about Judaism... I am not looking to the Orthodox for moral and spiritual guidance because they're not the the final answer. Yeah, we have to really understand that Judaism is based on a text that is over 3,000 years old, and anyone trying to use that text in a modern context has to put on so much interpretation to make it relevant to the modern world. So Orthodox Jews, as much as Reformed Jews, have to interpret it and have to use traditions that are not in that book, but that have been built over the centuries from it. And the difference is not how accurate they are to the Torah, but in how they've chosen to adapt it to the modern world. So Orthodox and Reform have both done that adaptation just in different ways. And then the conservative Jews are just trying to figure out a nice middle ground. So here's my really exciting, super fun way to bring this back to sex and give a really good example. In the Torah, you have 
examples of sex for procreation, be fruitful and multiply. And then you have what's called the rules of Ona, a wedding vow a man takes to sexually pleasure his wife. <laughs> and then the Torah and the commentary and the rabbis, as you said, with Shabbat, you're going to go and define what is work. The rabbis then define what is this man's moral obligation to his wife. The man is obligated to pleasure his wife. And then they set parameters for how often. So they also acknowledge through these different stories that Jewish women or women in general have sexual desire and sexual needs. It's not bad. It's not inherently sinful. You need water. You need food. You need sexual pleasure. Sexuality, unlike in Christianity, people thinking that sex is this sin that came from the fall. In Judaism, I mean, if you look at the Torah, God blesses Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to have a bunch of sex and a bunch of babies before the episode with the snake. So yep. sex is not related to sin. Sex is related to, it's a mitzvah to fuck. Yes, mitzvah loosely translates to a good deed or a... A commandment. God wants you to fuck and have babies, but also fuck to not have babies. Right. So the Onah rules then go into, I feel like maybe the rules of Onah, because frequently in the Torah, when they make a rule, it's in response to something that's not happening. So the rabbis <laughs> were like, no, you do need to pleasure your wife. Sex isn't just about you, the man, and the pleasure you're getting from fucking her. And then sometimes people made up wives' tales like, oh, if the woman orgasms first, the baby will be a boy, which is a whole other problematic <laughs> wives' tale. That's still a very old tradition. I love that. Okay. But aside from that, here are some of the rules of Onah. A man is obligated to pleasure his his wife every single night if he's just a free man. If he is a laborer, it's like once a week, once every two weeks. I think that's if he's a camel driver. The assumption being that you won't be home for two week spans. So you don't need to pleasure your wife. If you're a sailor, it's once every six months. But we don't have camel drivers anymore. Well, the so, idea seems to be if you're home, you should be intimate with your wife. Yes. And if you are about to go on a long journey, your wife will probably desire you, so you are obligated to please her before you leave. Aside from that, it does say that a man would be encouraged to divorce his wife or the woman would be encouraged to file for divorce if her husband is not holding up his vow to please her. So yeah. that's the whole, a woman can divorce her husband if he doesn't sexually pleasure her. It comes from these rules around sex for pleasure and what a woman deserves. Sexual pleasure is the right of the wife, not the husband probably because it was assumed the husband would be getting sexual pleasure. And the best part I love about the rules of Ona and the stories around it is there is no modesty. In fact, if you are a modest person, and by modest, they mean you don't want to be naked in front of your wife because you are modest or shy. The rabbis are like, fuck that shit. If you're not getting naked, <laughs> you can't be pleasing your wife properly because it's about connection and intimacy. And if you can't allow yourself to be unclothed in front of her, then you're not allowing that barrier of intimacy to be broken. I mean, I could be bastardizing this. We might end up with a Kala instructor calling in being like, you got it all wrong, but I doubt it. <laughs> I just love how, how there's all these rules around sex for pleasure that's rooted in creating joy and intimacy in a relationship. Yeah, I, I really love that. You know, it, it makes me think a lot about, uh, well, you know what it actually makes me think about is how in a lot of ways throughout history, people have been very segregated by gender. This happens today still in, in religious communities, but a lot of the Jewish writings that have survived are written entirely by men, trying to speculate and understand what sex should be like. And it's a bunch of guys talking about what do girls desire? There's some times that they get things hilariously wrong. Like, have you ever talked to a woman? That's not how the anatomy works. 
I had a TikTok very recently that I posted that was like flirting tips and I kept them gender neutral. When I say gender neutral, I mean, I did not direct them to any one person. Mm -hmm. It was just very much like, if you want to do this, do this. And someone comments, getting flirting tips from a woman is like, you don't ask a fish how it gets caught. You ask the fisherman. And my response was, but the fish can't talk. I think there's a Facebook group about this. What inanimate object are we comparing women to today? Yeah, except fish aren't inanimate. They're they're cold-hearted, though. So maybe that's the Cold-blooded. metaphor. Cold-blooded. Very you know, dehumanizing. I think 3,000 years ago, there was a lot more of a division between the roles of men and women. I read The Red Tent. Apparently, women had a whole week <laughs> where they would sit on some straw and bleed together. You know? <laughs> the world is a very different place before menstrual like products were widespread. It was a very different place. So on that note, we've sort of talked about the rules of Onan, sex for pleasure, and more of the, I would say, orthodox or more biblically rooted conversation. What does Judaism look like for the average person? I would say the secular or reformed or non-orthodox Jew. I think that the biggest thing about Judaism and sex right now is this anxiety by the older generation especially about the continuation of the Jewish people, quote unquote, through Jews having Jewish babies. And there's uh, a big idea that if Jews don't date other Jews, then they won't marry other Jews. And if they don't marry other Jews, then they won't have Jewish babies and the Jewish people will end. That's it. 4,000 years of history down the drain. Because you don't have a uh, cultural learning if one partner's not Jewish, apparently. I, I say in an interfaith relationship and have worked for many Jewish organizations over the years. Yeah, I think it is bunk. It is absolute garbage to think that we have survived for 4,000 years through every hardship in the world and we're going to just fizzle out now because our dating worlds have opened up more. That's not what has kept the Jewish idea alive. And if you have to believe that people will only be Jewish because both of their parents were Jewish, I think you have a very low opinion of the the power that Judaism has, the reason why it's a compelling group to be a part of. It's important to say it's a group. It's not only a religion. Judaism is not just uh, a set of beliefs that you ascribe to. Many Jews are in fact atheist and still identify strongly as Jews. Judaism is a community, and it's a community that you can be born into, or it's a community that you can convert to joining. The religious part of it is not primary. It's one important part of it, but Judaism is a lot more than that part. I also think this goes back to the idea that you do meet Jews who go, well, it's also an ethnicity. And what they mean by that is, you have the Ashkenazi ethnicity. This is your white Jew, your typical white Hollywood Jew that you would be familiar with. Ashkenazi tends to come from Poland, Russia, that side of Europe, versus Sephardic. And these were the Jews who were expelled from Spain. So they have a few different traditions. You know, they, they rice at Passover, but the Ashkenazis don't. The thing is, we all still speak Hebrew and engage with the text, but the way that they interpret is different. Their tunes are different. I say yep. theirs because I'm Ashkenazi. It's wonderful. But then you've also got your Ethiopian Jews, your Middle Eastern Jews. You've got your South American Jews. They immigrated from all over the world, but you've got a huge population in Argentina. What does it mean to be Jewish when you come from all over and you don't have just one way of believing? Yeah, a big conversation in the Jewish community right now is this big term called Ashkenormativity. So put that on your spelling bee. It's the concept that Ashkenazi culture is seen as 
the only Jewish culture. So when people say, what is Jewish food? And you say, oh, bagels and kugel, that's Ashkenazi food. But there's many dishes that are just as Jewish, like shakshuka um, or other well, things. Well, apparently shakshuka is North African. Well, apparently was... the bagel is Polish. Right? Uh, people don't realize Jewish food is just cultural food that they took with them. Yes. Blintzes and kugel are Polish dishes that the Jews brought with them. And shakshuka and falafel and hummus are Arab dishes that the Jews brought with them. But that's the point. Jews took dishes from the places that they were and adapted them to be part of their Jewish life. And this goes back to adapting sexual practices and the cultural practices from where you live. So for Jewish people, while we are Jewish, and that is very much a part of our identity, we are also members of the community outside of our religion, for most of us. So if we grew up in North America, we're going to end up with North American attitudes towards sex. If you grow up in maybe a more sexually puritanical place, actually, that sounds like the States versus Canada. Maybe I should take that back. I don't know. But wherever you live, those cultural attitudes will affect how you perceive sex and interactions and intimacy. And that's also okay. Yeah, I think the biggest thing about Jews and sex, once you leave the Jewish bubble, is this assumption that Jewish men are kind of effeminate and Jewish women are like Domineering. domineering. It's this idea of like the gender switch that Jewish women are super dominant and Jewish men are super submissive. And there's jokes about it. And it goes to the extent of talking like, oh, Jewish men have small penises. You have a joke about that, right? Oh, what happens when a Jew with a boner runs into a wall? What happens, Ray? He breaks his nose. <laughs> wow. So funny. Not at all offensive to anyone. I remember hearing that in high school from a Jewish person. And I was uh, like, but you have a regular nose and how small is your penis? Then? <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's very interesting because my Jewish friends and I talk all the time about how the one thing we think that Jews have in common in North American culture is that we've all been to therapy. So you have these <laughs> Jewish men who other people say effeminate. I say in touch with their emotions because their parents made them go to therapy. And you have women who are seen as masculine, but really it's just that we know how to advocate for ourselves and stand up for ourselves because we've been to therapy. We're all just taking the best of the opposite gender and not being confined to stereotypical gender roles. I think that our society as a whole has a problem with toxic masculinity and with the expectations placed on femininity as well that lead both women and men, to be cut off from a huge part of themselves. And if you're going to be this super machismo masculine guy and you're not going to talk about your feelings and you're not going to be sensitive to the things that are important, well, that's actually a problem. I, I, I don't want to just say that, you know, the stereotype is right because I think th there's a huge diversity in the Jewish community and there's tons of hyper-masculine Jewish men and hyper-feminine Jewish women but, you know, even if we do take the stereotype to be true for some Jews, I don't think it's a negative thing at all for men to be a little bit more sensitive and women to be a little bit more assertive than our society has told us to be. Because what our society has told us is unfair to both. Yeah. And then you have camp. But we're going to get to that later. Oh, Jewish. Which Jewish camp is a whole other interesting conversation around gender dynamics. But we're going to get to that, I think, in a later episode. I think the reason that we have Ashki normativity as well is because of the fact that North American Jews who ended up in Hollywood primarily were Ashkenazi for a long time. So they were yeah. telling Ashkenazi stories or you have a lot of Ashkenazi traditions showing up in, in popular culture because that is the people who are creating the art of where we live. 
And that was the majority of the people who were creating the media that we're consuming. Not that it's a media conspiracy. People don't realize that the reason Jews are so big in Hollywood is because when Hollywood was first being built, it was a shitty job that no one wanted. And yep. Jewish people or Jewish people at the time said, whatever, we like to work. We'll take work. We're not too fancy for this kind of labor. And then you get creative thinkers being encouraged to continue to grow. And you end up with these stories being told from people who took the job in the first place. And now all of a sudden it's a media conspiracy. It's the same thing with Jews and comic books. Comic books were seen as the lesser form of art. And while Jews suffered gatekeeping from the canon of proper literature, people were willing to give them a job to write these little funny pages. And so Jews took it. Also, humor has been the defense mechanism of the Jews for a very long time. We have been through some serious shit and you can either cry about it or you can find a way to laugh about it. So the last thing is, we've sort of talked about Jews in Hollywood, Jews in comedy, Jews in comedy being very inappropriate, maybe as a reaction to the rise of evangelical Christian puritanical culture. Mm -hmm. But I would say that even in Toronto, oh, here's a fun fact for any of our American listeners. Canadian Jewry is like behind by about 50 years in terms of social cultural revolution. We are a lot more traditional in terms of how we practice and the conversations happening around change is a lot slower to happen in Canada. We have a lot more of that panic around interfaith marriage than I think you have in the States in a lot of spaces. So on that note, even where we live in Toronto, I would say there's a big divide in terms of how communities are growing, even in the city of Toronto versus the greater Toronto area. I was working in the greater Toronto area and there was a lot more things that were maybe accepted on an individual level, but not accepted on an institutional level. You were working up north. Yeah, I was working up north in the suburbs. Versus downtown Toronto, and I think, Yona, you might have more experience with the downtown Toronto JCC since you've been working with them. What kinds of programming do they have now for the average Jewish person? The JCC downtown is really amazing. We have the LGBTQ group, which goes into the suburbs as well. We have a, a branch there. It's a little bit smaller, but we're extending. There's also a group called Jewish And, which is explicitly made to support... <clears throat> People in interfaith relationships, so a Jewish person and someone who's not Jewish, and having a space in the Jewish community center, in the Jewish community, to say that we can recognize and celebrate these families, these blends. This was not an advertisement for the JCC. This was mostly <laughs> just to point out that what people think Judaism is, even within the Jewish community, the GTA, where I was working, is not what the Jewish community is. And as I, Yona said at the beginning, there's something for everyone. Two Jews, three opinions, for sure. Even when it comes to sex. And especially when it comes to sex. Uh, a lot of Judaism doesn't talk about the nitty gritty of it. There's one amazing quote that I found recently from a medieval commentator on the Torah. Um with a little instruction manual on how to please your wife. And it talks about groping her breasts to get her in the mood. I mean, that's not very clear <laughs> on what that means, but I'll take that. I, I think it goes into more detail in the text, but I, I don't remember exactly how it says it. On that note, we're going to head into a commercial break, and then we're going to come back with a listener question. Do you want to join the deviants defining elite and actually tell people about it? Are you, like me, a fuck demon? 
We are launching Sex News with Ray Swag with these common phrases. We've got hats. We've got toots. That's beanies for you Americans. We've got sweatshirts. We've got crop tops. And as usual, all the art was designed by me, so it definitely has my personal flair to it. Check out the new designs at sharewithray.com slash merch slash SNWR and pick up a piece to support the podcast today. And we are back with a listener question. Yona, are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay, this one is my favorite kind of question that I get on this podcast. Is it kosher to go down on an uncircumcised dick? Sincerely, Salacious Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. I, I have so many thoughts. When I read this, I'm like, oh, I cannot wait to get started. Why don't you take it? Okay, we're going to start with... Is it kosher? Well, human flesh is actually not kosher. Human flesh is unkosher. So you can't eat any dick, whether it's circumcised or uncircumcised. But I'm going to take this less at literal value. Oh, by the way, for all those people who think that Jewish people bake Christian babies into their matzah. No, no, no. People not are only, kosher. Not only is human flesh unkosher, but Jews go to extraordinary lengths to remove the blood from any meat that they would have because eating blood is forbidden by Judaism. It's hilarious. And that's the thing. This dick, I'm assuming it's hard, would have quite a lot of blood in it. <laughs> so there's just a lot here in terms of using the word kosher. But let's use kosher in its more, more layman's parlance now to mean, is it not okay? And so is it not okay to go down on an uncircumcised dick? Once again, this depends on which Jewish person you ask. If you ask the Orthodox Jews, they would not be interacting with anyone with an uncircumcised dick in a sexual context, theoretically. So this wouldn't even be a question, but they'd probably say no. Versus the average Jewish person, that goes down to the rules of Ona and sex for pleasure, which is, are you doing this to please your partner? Is it creating an act of intimacy? Because if so, that's totally kosher. Is it a one night stand and you don't know the person's name? Technically, that is not sacred sex. Therefore, it is not kosher. But then you go into what is even sacred and what does that even mean? And when you're having sex with someone, whether or not you know their name, are you still creating a moment of intimacy with them just by going down on them? You know, so you could have a one night stand that's way more intimate than trying to get off with your partner in a, after 10 years of marriage kind of sex. So in that case, would it be sacred to have that moment of intimacy and pleasure with this random person whose name you don't know? And I think that the answer then would still be yes. If you are not cannibalizing the dick, totally <laughs> kosher to go down on it. Yona, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to bring the historical perspective into this. If you look at the Torah, they do frequently associate being uncircumcised with being I'm going to use the word barbaric, like the way that the Romans called you a barbarian if you weren't part of Rome. So if you didn't have a circumcised dick, uh, you were seen as really other to the Jewish community. And there is a whole story in the Torah dealing with the daughter of Jacob, Dina, and her relationship with a Canaanite from Shechem, where they say that you know, it's abhorrent that she's sleeping with someone with an uncircumcised dick. And the entire city circumcises themselves in order to be acceptable to the Jewish community. Not Jewish, the, the Israelites, the ancient Hebrews. Um, so you're saying that it wasn't kosher to go down on an uncircumcised dick back then? I think that for the, the people back in, in those times, yes. They wanted all dicks that you were going down on to be circumcised. Yeah, they would not have been okay with it. They would have said, if you're going down an uncircumcised dick and you really love the person with that dick, then they should get circumcised and convert to Judaism and then everything will be kosher. 
Okay, so what's your personal opinion, though? My personal opinion is that eating unkosher things is fine. Okay. And that whether you are having a delicious shrimp or an uncircumcised shrimp, those are totally fine, even though by traditional Judaism, they would be considered unkosher. So there you go. Two Jews, three opinions. Thank you for listening today. Yona, where can people contact or follow you? You can find me on Twitter at Yona Siena. And you can follow the podcast at Sex News with Ray on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And submit a listener question through sharewithray.com slash podcast or email sexnewswithray at gmail.com. Sometimes you can also just DM me directly and you can do so at Wife Bay Ray on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And Razor Latex on Instagram and OnlyFans. Follow me on OnlyFans. It's fun. This podcast is engineered and produced by Dave Meisner and is hosted at sexnewswithray.podbean.com. The theme music is by Blank and Brilliant. A special thank you to Blue Microphones. Photography for our logo is by Dolly Shots Photography. We haven't done this in a while, but Egan, I want you to know, penis. 